You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 21st of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Qatar's World Cup kicks off, as do a couple of consequent political rows. New Zealand ponders allowing 16-year-olds to vote, and as Earth's most powerful officeholder takes time from leading the free world to bestow liberty on a couple of farm animals, we'll consider other weird holiday traditions. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Tessa Shishkovitz and Charles Hecker will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll speak to Anna Aratunian about her new book, Considering How and Why the West Failed to See Russia Coming. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm joined today by the journalist and author Tessa Shishkovitz and by Charles Hecker, senior partner at Control Risks. Hello to you both. Hello. Good, good evening. evening. Um, we will shortly be talking about the World Cup, but before we do that, by way of light introductory banter, I wanted to gauge your own relative enthusiasm. Charles, it is less than an hour until the United States campaign kicks off against Wales. Will you be bailing out of the Daily to get to the nearest American theme bar to watch it while dressed as Uncle Sam? I will be rushing back to the office, immersing myself in the engaging work of geopolitics, responding to our clients' requests, and somewhere in the office in the background, there'll be a TV going. Do you actually care one way or the other how the United States gets on at this thing? I know how they're going to get on. They're going <laughs> to get on very, very poorly, and let's get that out of the way at the very beginning. Um, maybe I'll get the chance to watch them at some point in the early rounds, but that's going to be it. See, I, I have every con- confidence about Australia. I don't think the French will know what has hit them uh, roughly this time tomorrow. Um, Tessa, obviously, probably the less said about Austria's qualifying campaign, the better. But uh, are you following anybody instead? Look, the human rights situation makes it easier for me as an Austria to snub the whole thing and say, like, we we wouldn't have gone there anyways. (laughs) So your line on this is that Austria were taking a principled stand by crashing and burning throughout the entire qualifying process. For once, Austria takes a principled stand. Okay. well, we will start with the 2022 World Cup, which is underway in Qatar and going approximately as might have been predicted for the hosts, who suddenly find themselves catapulted from relative anonymity to a highish spot on the list of Earth's most criticised countries. Few favours were done by either Qatar or FIFA to themselves today with a last-ditch threat to issue yellow cards to any captains who adorned their sleeve with a rainbow armband. Um, Charles, first of all, this was something that a few captains, England, Wales and a few other mostly European countries were going to do. They were going to wear a rainbow-striped armband with one love written on it, a gesture of support for LGBTQ people who are not generally supported in Qatar, um, they have all buckled after a threat of the mildest consequence. That's right. They all went in unified. There were something like 10 nations, all of them European, who decided in unison together that they would wear this armband. And I think that the effort actually started in the Netherlands. Um, And you're right, in the exact same kind of unison, they all buckled. Um, What's interesting is that for the time being, as concerns various fans and supporter associations, um, most of the heat right now is being directed at FIFA. Uh, 
um, and very few individual teams, very few individual national organizations are taking the heat. So it seems that the bad guy so far in all of this is the international organization mm. rather than anything at the team level. Uh, Tessa, it is, of course, easy for us to say sitting around this table, we are not young athletes potentially experiencing their only chance to play at the absolute pinnacle of a footballer's career, etc. But should they have buckled, would it have been a meaningful gesture if, say, for example, Harry Kane, England's captain, had just worn the armband anyway and dared the referee to do his worst? Well, I do have certain, you know, I feel bad for these players who who want to play football and now they have to become also human rights champions at the same time. You know, it's it's individually, I think some of the stars could probably do much more than, than you know, normal players. And I have high respect for, for example, the Iranian team not mm. mouthing, not singing the anthem uh, at the game because that is really consequential for them probably when they go home um, but the problem as Charles says completely rightly it's the whole corrupt system of FIFA needs to be rethought and then put this competition somewhere where you don't have to deal with people who hate you know gays or women or all sorts of uh, LGBTQ fringe groups, everything, and have and put people in jail and let workers on stadiums die in the heat because they have no workers' rights there. I mean, this is all such a scandal that we really should not have this in the next mm. round again and then again and then again to to sort of let corrupt regimes dictate how football players also then in the end have to save our honour or the world's honour in fighting for human rights. Uh, Charles, it is of course not the first place which has hosted a global sporting event despite perfectly reasonable inquiries that might have been made about their suitability to do so. Is there an argument, however, that everybody is wailing on Qatar because it is actually relatively cost-free? For example, we saw the BBC refuse to broadcast the opening ceremony, which the BBC did not do vis-à-vis -vis the Beijing Winter Olympics of 2022 or, for that matter, the Russia World Cup of 2018. Yeah. Because China and Russia are China and Russia and Qatar's Qatar. Yeah, and so maybe it's easy to take a few pot shots. But, um, I mean, there's this general state of denial. And you're right, you know, there is no single host nation that is perfect for hosting a sporting event because we sort of have to at some point get away from this mass sense of denial that sports is outside of politics. Sports is one of the most politicized Indeed. industries or events in the world. And so every one of these decisions and every single host is politicized. And I think we should pre stop pretending that it's anything other than that. Um, you know, the defense of all of this is a little bit weak. And I should say I'm not, you know, not expressing the views of my employer on all of this, but there's an awful lot of whataboutism going around mm. and saying, well, you know, this place may not be the best host in the world, but neither was anybody else. Well, you know, this is kind of like what your mother told you when you were growing up, and that is that two wrongs don't make a right. Uh, and, you know, I think there should be a general acknowledgement that this is a political process. Let's let's not pretend it's anything else. And then the other thing is that all of these issues that are surfacing on opening day or in the hours before the opening matches, they could have been resolved a much, you know, much, much further in advance. And indeed could have been predicted, I think, much further in advance. But... Uh 
Tessa, what strikes me, and I'm absolutely not arraying myself behind FIFA here, which is a an obviously preposterous organisation, but it does strike me that they need to make a decision and they need to stick to that decision because what Charles says is true. The idea that you can divorce sport from politics entirely, especially international sport, is preposterous, but it is clear that some things are OK and some things are not. So we have had, for example, FIFA banning the rainbow armband, but yesterday uh, Qatar's captain, Hassan Alhedos, wore a free Palestine armband and nobody booked him for that. So does the question then become you either absolutely rigidly forbid any political expression by any player or you just let people express what they like? And I can kind of see that that would open up a can of worms as well. But I think we will have a huge debate about this anyways, because I think the times are over that there will not be political uh, statements, because that's how it is nowadays. Also, people are much more activist than they were a few years ago also. So it is already there taking the knee, doing this and that in the normal sort of range of things. But the other thing is, I think we should really start from the other side and make certain things clear. Do not apply to host the World Cup if... Uh, you forbid uh, gay people to come. Mm-hmm. Or if you want uh, workers to work for 35p per hour and then die in the heat. And all these kind of things. I mean, there's just plenty of things where we have to put the foot down and where FIFA has to be reformed. You know, you say they have to always make a decision. Yes, but they don't have to take the decision after accepting big, fat envelopes full of cash. I mean, that's something that should be reformed. I don't know how. Honestly, I'm not such a an expert on on FIFA, but from what we know, this old white man way of making business of old corrupt people that sit there for much too long without any scrutiny of anything just has to stop. It's bad for sports. It's bad for the athletes. It's bad for the viewers. I mean, football should be also fun. It should be great. We all would like to go and watch games, but without... Also destroying the planet by heating open stadiums to, uh, sorry, to cooling open <laughs> stadiums in the in the in the heat in the desert. Yeah, I mean there's a limit to what people should be allowed to do at these events. Uh, Charles, just finally on this, and um, Tessa has partly answered it already. Ob- there were obvious reasons why Qatar wanted this World Cup to in- increase their prominence, increase their leverage, uh, and so on and so on. How would you rate it? 24 hour or so 24 or so hours in as a soft power triumph for Qatar uh, the hot take on all of this is that it's a bit of an own goal if hey. we're going to keep with the uh, footballing metaphor thank you very much would you say that quite a lot of their behavior has been offside uh, I don't know do what the offside on, rule yeah, is, but I think it's something bad that not. you're not supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. um, I think there's an awful lot of dust that's going to have to settle before anybody's reputation goes up or down as a result of what's happening this week. Um, during the item we are shortly about to broadcast, Charles, I will explain the offside rule with the aid of that water jug and those two glasses. <laughs> because uh, sticking with the subject of opaque dictatorships with rickety human rights records, which have nevertheless hosted World Cups in recent memory, it might reasonably be observed that while it is ridiculous that Qatar is holding one, it was positively grotesque that four years ago Russia did, fully four years after its initial invasion of Ukraine and months after its hitmen distributed deadly nerve agent around an English town, among other malfeasances. The laying bare of the degree to which the West overindulged Russia has been the key theme of 2022 and is considered in a new book by Anna Aratunian, Hybrid Warriors, Proxies, Freelancers and Russia's Struggle for Ukraine. I spoke to 
to Anna earlier and began by asking about 2014 and why President Vladimir Putin was not, at the time, content to leave Ukraine alone. Well, this is a very good question. I mean, there is really no way to answer with certainty what Putin was thinking in 2014. And I touch on this issue in the book, although it largely focuses on the non-state actors that, in a way, I believe, forced Putin's hand. But then again, I also address this issue that he could have, and in my view, he probably should have put a full stop to this activity in Donbass having taken Crimea. The reason he didn't do this, I believe, was that he was afraid of seeming weak to his base and he was afraid of angering the very hawkish, very anti-Western security community, the FSB and in the military, that in a large way supported the non-state actors that went into Donbass after the annexation of Crimea. I mean, again, thinking back to around that period, and it was a very different government in power in Kiev at the time, but even given that confusion about what the rebellions wanted, and there is a, I mean, it's a kind of a heartbreaking moment when you speak to one young participant in these rebellions and he admits that what he basically wanted to do was run around waving a rifle. And that right there, I think, explains a great deal of civil conflicts all over the world. But was there a an accommodation that could have been offered that would have deprived Russia of any material with which to fabricate some sort of insurrection? I believe at that time there was, and in fact, a lot of the Ukrainian politicians I had been speaking to at that time were saying that, look, we need more engagement with the Russian-speaking population in the East. We need to talk to them about what they want in order to precisely ensure that the Russians don't have an opportunity to exploit them and to turn them against Ukraine. And this was not done. Moreover, there was a lot of very anti-Russian rhetoric coming out of Kiev. There were a lot of attempts to pass laws curtailing the use of the Russian language. And all of these really were not helpful in in that regard. Now, ultimately, of course, we can't blame Kiev for Russia's invasion or for what Russia did in 2014. But I think that there were things that could have been done at that point that would have made it a lot harder for Russia to do what it did. And again, going back to those early stages, did Russia benefit from the fact that the West, especially Europe, seemed to want to convince itself that this would be the end of it? And for that reason, did not react especially dramatically. Europe kept buying Russia's gas, kept buying Russia's oil, went to Russia's World Cup in 2018. I mean, again, parallel universes are always an inexact science, but again, thinking back to what you recall of that moment, if Europe and the wider West had just said, this is just not going to happen, would anything have been different? Well, I think, in fact, this is the strange thing that was going on in the way that the Kremlin was making these decisions during the spring and summer of 2014. I mean, having an ex-Crimea, I think there was a sense that there was a lot of confusion about where to go next and what to do next. And a lot of that confusion was based on this idea among hawkish circles, people in the military and the FSB, that were of a very strong opinion that the West would not allow Russia to keep Crimea and that the only way to protect what they had gained was to move further into Ukraine. 
obviously there was no sign of that happening that was based on i think either bad intelligence or just paranoid a, a very paranoid worldview but i think to a large extent that's what they believed so you know it's hard to tell what would have happened had there been a stronger western response at the very beginning but i think there's also the issue of in the west we got to the point of the minsk package of measures that was being negotiated in late summer and early fall of 2014 there was a sense among european leaders that maybe russia's actually wanting to push these territories back into Ukraine and maybe we should kind of work with it to do so and and at that time that's what the kremlin wanted to do i mean it was just very disingenuous in its wider strategy well, that prompts a question that is also raised by your book, because it's an interesting line on Putin, which you don't read very often. Again, it's a, another fairly lazy binary narrative that has developed, uh, doubtless to Putin's great delight, that he is this brilliant marionette operating string pulling master strategist. Whereas your contention is that he doesn't really like making big decisions and he's not very good at making them when he does. Well, this is what we know about from just descriptions of insiders who've dealt with him, who've talked with him, is that he puts off big decisions until the very last minute. And he tends to make verbal signals rather than firm policy decisions. And I think it does that in a great part to avert taking responsibility for bad things happening, which creates this sense of this great deal of confusion about what he wants and kind of encourages people to pitch policies to him to what was once termed a marketplace of policies of various Kremlin factions or non-state actors kind of pitching things that they think that Putin might like and actually hoping that this would become policy. And then we get a situation where Putin ends up being driven or locked into doing these people's biddings. I mean, that does seem also of a piece with the very idea of the hybrid warrior, as your title has it, all these mercenaries, proxies, semi-deniable forces with which Russia at least initially waged its war in Ukraine. Exactly. And I think this is probably the most misunderstood aspect of this war is the extent to which it was waged by non-state actors acting with their own vision and sometimes directly against the Kremlin's wishes, not that the Kremlin really did much to stop them. And the rebel fighter that you mentioned, this is actually a Russian volunteer. And I think this is very indicative of the kind of ambitions, that the kind of personal, very selfish ambitions in, in a lot of ways that drove them to do what they did. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't believe in what they were doing. They thought that they were doing the right thing, absolutely, and they believed that the Kremlin was behind them. But this is a situation that ultimately creates a very dangerous predicament for the Kremlin when it doesn't put a stop, when it kind of relies on non-state actors to do its dirty work. But then the non-state actors, are, you know, they're agents. They're not just soldiers who take orders. They have their own agendas, their own interests, and that got out of hand. Just finally then, Anna, and we won't hold you to any predictions you may care to make, but you've obviously been following this story, reporting on Russia, reporting on Vladimir Putin for a long time. Your book takes us from the origins of this war, more or less up to the present. How do you see it ending? Oh, wow. I mean, there's lots of ways. It's Again, it's uh, impossible to predict. I think, I mean, it's hard to see really any positive ending here. 
to be honest, I think the likeliest is that this is going to drag on for a very long time. However, I do hold on to somewhat of a cautiously optimistic potentiality, and that is that at some point the Kremlin will find that the risks the mounting risks and the mounting costs of waging this outweigh what they have to gain. And he'll come to a more realistic understanding of just how possible and how misguided this whole venture was. And in that case, what he can do is what he's done in the past is create a win out of nothing. In other words, lie about having reached his objectives. I mean, this is something that autocrats do a lot. Again, I don't think we're anywhere near that happening yet. But it is something to look at in the future, potentially. That was Anna Aratunian speaking to me earlier. She's the author of Hybrid Warriors, Proxies, Freelancers and Russia's Struggle for Ukraine. Well, let's bring our panel back in. Um, Tessa, I'll ask you first to play the, the, the same game of the wiser with hindsight parallel universe. Um, if we go back to 2014 and the West takes the hard line akin to what it took earlier this year, do the next eight years work out differently if Russia is told in 2014 this isn't happening? Well, if you remember in 2014, first he... Um sort of um, played around with uh, Crimea and then he sort of, uh, the plane got shot down over the eastern Ukraine where the Russian rebels were playing war. So at that point, the first sanctions happened in the European Union. Really, people got upset also. Yeah, The question was... We, what... we kept buying their gas though. Well, no, absolutely. And I mean, this is where I was going with this. I mean, it was not an economic war then, although the sanctions were, you know, everything was hard to get through in the European Union because countries like Austria or like Germany and some of the Eastern European uh, countries had a very, very high uh, dependency on Russian gas. And till this spring, and this is then eight years later, people were convinced that it would have would be impossible to to get rid of uh, all this Russian gas and oil in Central Europe. And so we see how quickly realities can change also. And I'm quite relieved, actually, that at least this is what happened now. At the time, for me, it was almost unbelievable how little uh, we did when, when sort of border Putin moved borders in Europe by annexing the Crimea and um, with all the debate that is right there was a lot of apologetic talk in Central mm. Europe where you think like people should be a bit more sensitive to their borders because that can happen to a lot of other nations too that they are just being moved because a bully thinks it's just better for him to have this in his pocket and so this is the the whole story is pretty sad. It has a lot to do with realpolitik, which I also understand. Governments need to buy the cheapest gas in order to make their populations happy. But there could have been a lot more um, awareness of how bad this regime in Russia had become. And especially, of, of course, in the case of Austria, we've talked about this endlessly by now. But inviting him to a private wedding in 2018 was sort of one of the big embarrassments of the diplomatic nation of Austria over the last 300 years, probably. Uh, the other argument against that, Charles, is that in 2014, the Ukrainian military was not anything like as well-equipped, well-trained, well-organised, well-led as it has been in 2022, that even if we had wanted to enable the Ukrainians to take the extraordinary stand that they have taken this year, um, the option wasn't really there. Yeah, and well, and part of that 
equipment and part of that training and the part of that preparedness and, and, and readiness all comes from the fact that Ukraine has partnered with the West. Mm. Um, and that's Western technology and Western know-how and, and Western training. Um, that came gradually and then came very, very suddenly um, after the conflict started. And so, no, Ukraine was not in a state of preparedness to push back on this. And frankly, I mean, you were in a position where, you know, even now people say things that like, you know, Biden's not going to change, you know, trade Chicago from Moscow in, in the event of a nuclear conflict. Nobody will, was willing to trade anything really mm. for Crimea, for a peninsula that most people outside of Crimea and outside of Ukraine couldn't really find on a map. And so, it, you know, it's easy to say all of this stuff in hindsight, um, but we didn't have that sort of, of scenario to look forward to that we've got now. I mean, the interesting thing in all of this really is that the people who got Russia wrong um, in the run-up to the conflict were Russia experts and political scientists who were looking at this and, and didn't see what happened with the violation of the borders of a European, of a large, important European country as a precursor to anything else. Uh, Tessa, were there one or two other things that should have been louder wake-up calls than they were? We are there or thereabouts the 18th anniversary of the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko here in London. You have interviewed his wife, uh, Marina. Is that a point at which the UK in particular could have taken a stand? Well, if you remember in 2006 when he was wilting away in, in hospital for three weeks, people were rather shocked, of course. In the same period, Anna Politkovskaya, the uh, mm. uh, journalist in Russia, got shot dead in the entrance of her house for criticizing Putin's regime. Um, and researching corruption. So there were very strong indications that this regime was going bad. And also in the West, people would get killed by FSB agents who took revenge on a former FSB um, operator, uh, uh, as Alexander Litvinenko was originally. But so when you speak to Marina Litvinenko today as his widow, after all these years, she has fought such a long campaign to get awareness of what happened to uh, her ha her family and to her husband at the time and how they could all see what nobody wanted to hear here uh, in the governments, successive governments in, in Britain. Uh, and it took a long time until um, Theresa May started to listen uh, mm. at the time as prime minister. And there was an inquiry in parliament where, which famously ended with, with the sentence, the um, trace of this, the polonium ends at the Kremlin's door, at Putin's door. But that was, you know, rather late already in the game. And then with the um, poisoning of Sergei Skripal, uh, again, sort of could have been treated as an internal FSB story. But by that time, it was over with thinking that it's just an internal Russian slaughtering game between former agents or interest groups or mafia people or oligarchs or something. And that's there has been a real shift in this. And, of course, Marina Litvinenko, who is a, you know, who has now sees also that you know, we were meeting uh, last Friday at the Boris Nemtsov Square in Highgate. So there are some signs that there's more awareness and that sort of an opposition leader like Nemtsov who got killed, shot you know, in plain sight in front of the Kremlin in 2013, that some people at least honor these these people with certain things. But of course, that's not enough ever for having done so very little to help in these human rights causes and also to, to shed light on these crimes, which have 
directly affected British citizens because Alexander Litvinenko was a British citizen. Well, when he indeed, got uh, as as were the victims of the Salisbury poisoning. And just finally and quickly on this subject, Charles, um, a, a complementary question, which is 2018. Was that a potential pivotal moment after Russian agents turned nerve gas loose in a small English town with fatal consequences? Why would the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom not instruct Russia's ambassador to pack up and push off and furthermore announce we're not coming to your World Cup and nor should anybody else? Uh, you know, this this sort of makes me think of boiling frog syndrome, mm. where, you know, all of these events that we've just, that Tessa's just described in great detail that were happening as one-offs in, in, in this country here or that country there or that country in another place, um, really fail to add up to the picture that we see now. And, and I think that this is, you know, why didn't Theresa May do this? Because she was probably afraid of what would happen. She was afraid of, of, of poking the bear and, and afraid of what, would, of what Russia's reaction would be. Um, because just as Anna Aratunyan was talking about in her book, in the in the hybridization of everything, we talk, we have the weaponization of everything. And who knows what sort of other weapons Putin could have turned on the UK or on other countries um, at that time. I mean, and then just finally on this, and I think the test has also illustrated this extremely effectively, and that is that we think that the West in, in, in sort of all caps um, has some sort of response to Russia, and it doesn't. Um, there has been a different approach from from the UK, from France, from Austria, from Italy, which once a year holds a, a call-in show with Putin for Italian businesses. Um, we had Hillary Clinton trying a reset. We had George W. Bush looking into Putin's eyes and seeing his soul. We've had this incredibly uncoordinated attitude towards Russia. So how could the, the UK take unilateral action in a setting like that? Well, let's move along to something entirely different. In the vast majority of countries, which occasionally trouble to ask their people who would they who they would prefer to be running the joint, the voting age is 18. New Zealand's Supreme Court, in a curious ruling, has declared that this is discriminatory, as indeed it is, just like laws forbidding six-year-olds from getting tattoos or nine-year-olds from driving heavy industrial vehicles. The presenter is aware that the court was highlighting an apparent inconsistency with New Zealand's Bill of Rights, which forbids age discrimination over the age of 16, but I thought I'd have some fun with it. Sue me. As a consequence, anyway, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has promised to draft a bill lowering the age of voting to 16. Um, Charles, first of all, I, of course, like all sensible people, believe that the voting age should in fact be raised uh, to, I'm going to say, about 50. Um, Where are you on the idea of enfranchising 16-year-olds? I'm completely with you on this. You will find... (laughs) Now, you will find that people suggest, and I know that this was the result of a court decision in New Zealand, but you will find that politicians suggest lowering the voting age when they start to get the feeling that things aren't necessarily going their way. There's this assumption that younger voters will skew left. And and that is by and large true. And that's what happened in the U.S. midterms, by the way, where <clears throat> younger voters um, went heavily Democrat. And so... Um, Prime ministers, presidents, politicians on the left wing end of the spectrum are always very happy to pretend to drop, you know, to want to drop uh, the voting age because they think that they are going to acquire a new constituency of voters. Um, I think that this must mean that our darn sense is trouble. Um, it's what happened in Scotland. Uh, and uh, But I think, by and large, I'm with you, Andrew. I think that the voting age should be much, much higher. Uh, Tessa, you are from a country which has already done this. Austrian 16-year-olds may vote. Has it made any difference to anything? 
God, that's a mean question again. Those <laughs> Austrians, it's discriminatory almost. Mm. No, um, it, it it's true that in Austria you can vote from 16 on. I think as opposed to you two old men here, <laughs> that it's absolutely brilliant to lower the voting age to 16. It educates people, young people, about democracy and their democratic rights. And also, you know, look at what we need also in our countries are people who are a little bit aware of what is coming, for example, climate change. And if you ask the 70-year-olds, you won't get any votes for parties that take this seriously. So the 16-year-olds, they are afraid of what will happen to the planet. So I think it's they have a really good reason for being allowed to go to the polling. Are you advocating taking the vote away from old people? No, I would never. <laughs> you know, I have I have high, high respect for old people and their wisdom. So I, I'm also advocating that. I broadly believe the franchise should be restricted to people born within about six months of my birthday. <laughs> I see you're not so serious about this, but I have to really disagree with you because I think people should take that much more in that young people uh, are often also very smart and they are sort of active and they go to the streets and they are not sitting at home protecting their pensions and we have to really look at their thinking much more and let them express it at the th at the at the at the polls but my, my counterpoint to that is that a lot of young people especially teenage boys are total idiots and I know because I was one Yeah, but I, I'm so sorry that I can't relieve you now of your historical <laughs> responsibility here. But look at all these climate protests now that are gluing their hands to the floor and and trying to change I'm, government I, I, policies. I'm not, I'm not sure whose side you're taking over there. Well, I'm certainly taking the side of the activists. I think if you are not, if you don't hold elected office, and if you're not even allowed to vote passively for people to be elected, then you need to go to the streets. So that's also one reason where I think participation in political processes is super important to educate young people to get into this instead of, you know, people always complain they do only play video games at home. It is not true. They want to be there. They want to do stuff. They want to change the world. And I think we should let them do that. I, my, my actual serious stance on this is that I'm I totally see the idea that it embeds the idea of voting earlier and therefore means that somebody who votes young is perhaps more likely to continue with that habit throughout their life. But I did just want to ask finally, um, I'll ask you, Charles, because uh, I think Tessa has agreed that she would enact this reform. What changes would you make to the franchise where you are from if you could? Because as regular listeners will be aware, my, the, the, the tub I always thump on this is in favour of compulsory voting as we have in Australia. I'm going to say something horribly controversial and quite possibly also unconstitutional and illegal. Um, and Why that is, not? I, I, I wouldn't mind, actually, if you had to first pass some sort of civic education class before you're allowed to vote. And, and I realize that we've been there in the United States and, and, and those... Not necessarily with the most pure-hearted of motives. No, um, <clears throat> you're absolutely right. And I take your point on all of that. But I just wish that younger voters, look, whatever age they are, had a little bit more political and civic literacy and the, the capability to think a little bit more critically about the processes that are, processes that are taking place around them. I mean, we can't um, erect barriers to voting and people are allowed to express their political expressions however they feel. But I just wish that, you know, high schools where I'm from were doing a slightly better job of equipping people 
to vote more smartly. Well, on the subject, finally, on today's show of where you're from, Charles, today US President Joe Biden undertook one of the weirder duties which attends his office, pardoning two turkeys which might otherwise have been bound for a Thanksgiving table on Thursday. Having done, as I have, a frankly unjustifiable amount of research into this ritual, there appears to be consensus that the first presidential turkey pardon, as we now understand it, was issued by John F. Kennedy on November 19th, 19. 63 in what turned out to be one of his last decisions in the White House, which is a melancholy parable of the impermanence of power and indeed life. Before anybody writes in, Abraham Lincoln, I know, did pardon a turkey, but that was before Christmas, and the Harry Truman theory has been soundly debunked by the Harry Truman Library. First of all, here is President Joe Biden showing how it's done. Please welcome the 2022 National Thanksgiving Turkeys chocolate and chip. I tell you what, man. But chocolate chip weighs 46 pounds, and I'm told he loves catching sun on the Outer Banks. And uh, chip weighs 47, and he loves barbecue and basketball, I'm told. Uh, After receiving their presidential pardons today, chocolate and chip are going to head to one of the nation's great basketball schools and research universities, North Carolina State. And now, based on their temperament and commitment to being productive members of society, I hereby pardon. I hereby pardon, yes. I hereby pardon chocolate and chip. Which one's chocolate, who's chip? President Joe Biden earlier pardoning chocolate and chip. Uh, Charles, uh, we're going to ask you, as we often do, to, to explain your entire country to our listeners. What, what, is, what is going on here? What is the deal with this? First of all, this is a greater act of mercy than you can ever imagine, because I can't even contemplate how bad a 46-pound turkey would taste, <laughs> how long it would take to cook, and what on earth you would do with the leftovers. Um, you know, look, you have to have a turkey at Thanksgiving. Otherwise, people talk about you behind your back. Um, if you're a vegetarian, perhaps you cook a salmon or perhaps you skip the whole thing or have a second helping of of Brussels sprouts. But you've got to have a turkey at the center of a dining table for Thanksgiving. Um, The secret to all of this, the very poorly kept secret, is that actually most people don't like turkey. I I think it is is way overrated myself. I do have a follow-up question for you, Charles, which is, has there been a US president who you believe has carried this ritual out with particular elan? And I'm very much hoping you will answer why, yes, of course, President George H.W. Bush, because we've got a clip of him doing it. Uh, You know, never work with children and animals, I guess is what they say all the time. And you've seen sometimes turkeys who get a little bit single-minded when they're on the table waiting to be pardoned. They behave as if they're about to be executed instead and have gotten a bit out of control. Well, here is uh, Bush the first. That brings me to another traditional moment involving our special guest over here today, the guy in the cage there, who seems understandably nervous. It is my great privilege to receive the traditional Thanksgiving turkey. Millie has been put upstairs, uh, looking wistfully out of the window, I'm sure. But let me assure you and this fine Tom turkey that he will not end up on anyone's dinner table, not this guy. Uh, He's granted a presidential pardon as of right now and allow him to live out his days on a children's farm not far from here. 
President George H.W. Bush pardoning a turkey. Um, Tessa, to bring you in, because we wanted to expand this a bit to talk about what weirdo holiday traditions our own countries have, I, I will lead with the state of Victoria, which is the only jurisdiction I am aware of that holds a bank holiday for a sporting event, and, and it does it twice a year. The Friday before the Australian Football Grand Final is a bank holiday, and the first Tuesday of November, the day of the Melbourne Cup, a horse race, is also a bank holiday. That is really, really nice. I can't even come up with something that um, sporty in Austria. Everything is connected always with Catholic church mm -hmm. feasts and the season, also the seasonal things like uh, Thanksgiving, which would be Erntedankfest in Germany and in Austria, where you sort of schlep all your products that you harvested into a church and get it blessed and all this kind of thing. So it's not very much fun. You know, I always <laughs> I always sort of um, envied, um, you know, the Finns who go to a sauna before Christmas and all this. I mean, it would be unthinkable in Austria to have these interesting things. I mean, the only thing that I have to say about... There's, the, a, there's a quote for the tourism posters. Yeah, well, we could. We could sort of invent something, you know, Cold swim in the Danube, I would be all for it to get... You've got cake and waltzes. Yeah, we do, but this is all not really connected. You know, it's all quite serious, these, 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 these seasonal parties. The Vienna Philharmonic, is that, that's the New Year's Eve or New that's Year's New Day? Year's concert. Yeah. And then we play all these waltzes that, I mean, you know, questionable... For some people in 2022. So, you know, it's, uh, we'll have to think about this a little bit better. Well, just finally then, I'll ask you first, Charles, uh, whether you have any Thanksgiving plans. I do have, in fact. I am going to a Thanksgiving dinner being held by actual authentic Americans, but they are actual authentic American vegetarians, so I'm guessing turkey will not be on offer. What are you bringing as a side dish? What is your contribution to the evening? A nice bottle of Australian Shiraz. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, that's, that's a very <laughs> polite and easy way out. I will be getting on a plane tomorrow and heading down to Miami to visit my beloved father and the rest of our family, and we're going to a restaurant, so the turkey will be fine. Will you be having what I ha I understand has in recent times become a Thanksgiving tradition, i.e. the all-in family brawl about Donald Trump? Ooh, um, actually, we're all pretty much on the same side in this nah. family when it comes to that. So it'll be reasonably peaceful on the political front. Uh, we'll see what happens after the primaries. Uh, I will, of course, be home to catch the, at least the second half of the football as well, I think. The American football, which is what people also do on Thanksgiving. Before they fall asleep on the sofa, they manage to watch a little bit of football. Indeed. And Tessa, do you have any plans? Yeah, I'm actually going to New York tomorrow to celebrate Thanksgiving with my, my children who are not even American. So we like actually Thanksgiving. It's nice. You don't have to feel guilty for anything because it's not even your party and you can eat well and you can laugh. And Will there easy. be turkey in an argument about Donald Trump at your Thanksgiving? Well, we are, of course, all aligned on this. And I was thinking after I saw these pictures of um, John F. Kennedy pardoning the, the turkey that had this sign around his neck saying, good eating, Mr. President. I thought, like, maybe we should do with pumpkin pie and marshmallows <laughs> this year. Tessa Shishkovitz and Charles Hecker, thank you both for joining us. That is all for this edition of The Monocle Daily. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nicholl. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thank you for listening.